0: Columbia is going to say no to this. Is it? I'm going to start being the New York City filmmaker guy, and and then surprisingly, like a couple of days later, they said yes. It wasn't a matter of where do I go. It was just do I go or not. And like my kind of mantra all through college with my buddies who we made films and comedy with was like, do it live. Yeah, like do it live, and that that was our thing. And we're just like, when else am I going to have this opportunity? Let me yes, and this moment in my life and. Just see and see what happens. And the part about the article that I wasn't too happy with was maybe the assumption that I was naive in some way to the financial decision I was making. When it was more like, like you said before, I was weighing the risk against the reward and it changed my life for the better. I'm still waiting, for, like, the paycheck hasn't come yet. That, that doesn't mean that the, like, the skills I learned along the way equate to what my income is right
1: now. My life with my parents know what? Fast is where this town's getting me. I'll take my savings and I'm moving to the city. And everything's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I'm moving to New York to pursue my dreams and everything's fine under the Welcome everybody
2: to the faking, faking notes, podcast. notes podcast. It's the faking Notes podcast. So today on the podcast, we got Zach Morrison in the house. He's a filmmaker. He's worked across comedy. He's won student Emmys. He's had a lot of success. And he was also the feature in a Wall Street Journal article about student loan debt. And so we talk a lot about that at the beginning of this podcast, how to tackle it, what it's like to deal with media outrage going in and being attacked he really talks about like what can happen
1: when a large publication writes something about you, and then people tend to take very different perspectives from that story than was intended by you, and probably even the, the writers of the article. But he takes it all in stride. He also talks about his process as a creator. He talks about the importance of pursuing something that's unique and, and your own and not being afraid. And we just had like this really cool down-to-earth conversation about you know what it's like to be creative. And we also talk about some of the best use cases for college. We always poo-poo college and like oh, it's too expensive. but we do highlight so many of the wonderful benefits and reasons why you still should think about getting a higher education.
2: Check out his films. He's done a great job. He's just hustling. He's, he grinds, and he understands that this is a long-term game, and you just got to keep growing and keep making art, keep working on your craft. If you enjoy our episodes or you're just joining us today, please subscribe. Please leave us a review. It's the best way to support this podcast. If you want to hang out
1: with us you know, after a long day's hard work, you can find us in our Discord channel. Um, we talk about what we've done that day. We share some projects that we've worked on. And also if you want to support us directly in what we do and help us keep making this podcast, you can support us on Patreon. We also wanted to shout out to our newest member, Aunt Shay. He's been in the he's been in the Discord. He's been so active in our community, a part of the faking fam. So we're so thankful. We can't wait to keep growing this podcast. Um, shout out. Shout out. We're looking forward to making much more content for you.
2: It's a wonderful conversation. Please welcome our next guest, Zach Zach Morrison. Morrison. Zach Morrison, welcome to the Faking Notes podcast. Let's just jump in. So I'm going to jump into a topic that's very (laughs) top of mind for many of our listeners who are entering, currently in, or are a few years out of college student loans. Oh, oh, it's fun. This is a happy, positive. positive oh, yeah. Podcast. Fun thing to always talk about. But so the three of us, we all took the plunge into student debt to attend top institutions. So there's a lot of similarities there. But where the similarities stop is that neither of us were interviewed and the face of a, a Wall Street <laughs> Journal article talking about the seriousness and the thoughts and what, what goes into the student loan process for the record, because we're going to talk about all the yeah. awesome things you've been doing, what leads you to this moment, what you're up to now, who made you. The student loans, they don't define us, they don't f- define you, but they do fundamentally affect how we move through this career and how we move through life. Right. A little, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, just yeah, fundamentally or yeah, fi- financially or physically, all the above. But so just a few weeks ago, you were featured in the Wall Street Journal in an article titled Financially Hobbled for Life The Elite Master's Degrees That Don't Pay off. So first off, are you okay? <laughs> are you okay? Be the focus of this. Yeah,
0: no, I'm doing all right. It was funny that the timing of that couldn't have been worse because I was away with family in Ocean City, Maryland on vacation. Just like at the beach, this is the thing we do every year, like big, loud weekend, a lot of just drinking and hanging out and seeing family and stuff. Had no clue when the article was coming out, had no, no idea what part of it, I was going to be. I just knew that they took a couple pictures of me and interviewed me for a little bit. And then in the middle of the 4th of July, I was on the beach and the article or the fifth or whatever day it was and the article drops. And then it's just like, this vacation's over now because now I (laughs) spent the next next three days just like going through all the social media posts and having to engage with it and all that stuff. So yeah, I think (laughs) since then I've recovered a bit, but no, I'm doing all right. That's so
1: interesting because I... I don't know what that's like, dude, like on such a big platform and having the social have, having social media react. That must be so interesting. And you'd be surprised cuz they reacted at the stuff that I
0: didn't think they'd react at. I was expecting either, oh my, this is a problem, like oh my god, look at these students, like this cost of education in this country is mm-hmm. like a huge generation defining issue. No, they were like, "Oh, that guy? That guy sucks." <laughs> <laughs> like I, I hate this person because of this. And even now, the Twitter trolls have found me, and it's just, it's just fun. They're just constantly throwing spitballs from the back of the room, and I don't understand where they get the time because all they're doing is just, "Oh
1: yeah, oh, look at this guy, he's terrible." Like, uh, yeah, and it's just what. What is their <laughs> argument? I'm, I'm really curious because, like, I read yeah. your article. And I was like, dang, yeah. I see myself in this guy. Like I wasn't thinking that <laughs> this is so weird. So did they have any justification or are they just yeah, like, well, hey. Well,
0: because you guys are artists. So I think we all get it like to a certain extent. And these are people who are, who don't work in the arts, who don't understand the financial struggle of being like a below the line person in the entertainment industry. And
1: so I think they're just
0: like, oh, what a, what a dumbass!"
1: Oh my yeah. God. Like I got a degree in viola. So <laughs> I'm sure people think the same thing about
0: me. I mean, but that's awesome though, like you could viola like who plays the viola,
1: like that's cool, exactly, you know? and so <laughs> what am I going to do with that? you know yeah but, I, but it was my passion, and I think that's something that we they don't understand as what well. guess where you're getting at is like when we discover something. That lights us up in our soul oh, yeah. in a way. That's what we have to do. There's no free?
0: other. There's no other choice. Like I actually, mm-hmm. I, my way into the arts was music. I started on the tenor saxophone, and then all the way through high school, and then when college came, I was like, I don't want to be the kid playing a horn in his dorm room. So I like taught myself guitar, and but so like mu- music was without a doubt my way in. And then, and it, like you said, once you learn that you want to go in the arts, go into performance, go into entertainment, like whatever that little bug is. Like Inception, it's, that's in there now. That's not it. It's over. Yeah. yeah.
2: It's there to stay. And what was wild is just since I, I knew you and I was already familiar with your journey to then suddenly see all <laughs> sorts of people sharing it across all forms of social media. So I've got all of my arts friends over there with yeah. their opinions, their stories really <laughs> resonating. Or critiquing academia, critiquing the system, cancel student loans. And then on the other side, because I have self-loathing, I follow a lot of right wing <laughs> stuff just to Great. see what the crazies going on. And they're just blowing up. The Daily Wire, like everyone just oh, let's yeah. pile on, let's own the institutions. Also, this guy's an idiot. Also yeah. and he hates America or whatever. And it's just like the craziest <laughs> thing. And I'm like, and your face is attached to all. of them. like, right, oh my god, right. it's different when you know the person. <laughs> How are you reading into this? Wow, they put a they put a face to this yeah. issue that's so far beyond. It's so
0: it. great because like Ben Shapiro went on a rant about me. Like Mike wrote, yeah, yeah, Mike wrote mm-hmm. the Dirty Jobs guy like posted a whole big thing as yeah, if I love
1: Mike. Rowe. Wait, what? <laughs>
0: Yeah, and to be fair with with him, he's like always had this singular focus about why trade school is important, and like yep. power to him. He does really great work, but it was just funny that oh, he, but and even the people read in the comments of his post. He like his whole message was like, yeah, like maybe we need more people going to trade school, and maybe that that, that access is great. He did say we don't need more filmmakers, which I totally disagree with. But even the people in that comment section who like agree with him for the most part
2: We're saying like, oh yeah, this kid's an idiot. And I'm like, that's, that's not the point. I but remember watching that. It's also ironic that Mike Rowe is on a television show. And <laughs> right. We don't yeah. need, we don't need filmmakers. Wait, where's my lighting? Where's my light? Right. Where's my light person? Yeah. We no, but- need- <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. And then, and then there was like this, there was this other guy on YouTube that like, and I was really flattered by this because he not only used that terrible photo from the the Wall Street Journal as like his thing, but he looked up like my films. He like did he did his research <laughs> oh on me and put together this whole ten minute like thesis about why I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't want to shout out his name and like give him airtime, but Gritty. it's but it, it's hilarious because again, it, apparently this article angered people in totally the wrong way. That like it, it fueled this guy to spend. 20 hours out of his day yeah. to dig up and whole clips and edit the thing and mm-hmm. so i can only just laugh at at the broader internet reaction it's been funny
1: so i'm curious what was what in your own words do you think was the takeaway of the article for people that may have not read it or people who may have not yeah. even seen the blowout what was it trying to accomplish i i th-
0: i think it had, it had very good intentions what they were with the article, I, from my perspective, and I, I my undergrad is in into journalism, and I wrote news for a while. I, I get it. I think what they were trying to point out is that you, ha- and again, in this ma- we have this macro problem of institutions are charging infinite dollars for tuition. Like tuition just keeps going up, and the government keeps writing blank checks to these schools on the expense of taxpayers. And it's like, there's no checks and limits to like the federal student loan process in relation to how much <clears> tuition costs in this country. And that's, that's the issue. Like that's the core kind of macro story here. And I think they did a piece, they, the arts piece came first and then they put out like a couple of weeks later, one on like finance or lawyer, law students but we don't judge lawyers when they take out $300,000 in loans for school. We judge artists when they do. And I think that's where, like, the, this sort of missed perspective is yeah, that we have these big problems, but I think everyone focused on you spent all that to do the arts. You're crazy. But, like, yeah. I think at the core of the issue, like, I, what, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to speak up about it is because I think it is a really important issue. I, I I don't know how I'm going to pay that now, like in 2021, but we have an entire generation of students who have the same problem across all fields. So it's not just an art specific thing. This one just happened to be about like Columbia's film program as like the specific example to the story.
2: And they even had that graph in there, the
0: outlier.
2: It it looks (laughs) looks like it's Russell Westbrook's like, triple-double numbers, <laughs> where it just like it's just far, so far outfield of everyone else's that it's unbelievable. And oh, yeah. Columbia Film School. Is there a particular reason why? Is it a three-year program? or?
0: Uh, it is a four- to five-year program for well, That's directors.
2: why. That's well, like an unfair thing, because well, grad <laughs> programs are, are two years. And, and to well. be fair,
0: for the, the producing students, are in and out in three years. The writer-directors are in four to five. But the way they structure it is, just like any other MFA It's two years of full time classwork. It's 21 credit semesters, Saturday classes. You're making your stuff. That's all you do with your life. No time to work. But then, whereas other film programs, you're done in those two years, and then you have to spend the next couple of years out of school making your like calling card piece, like making your writing your film, making your short, whatever it is. Columbia's, and I loved this part of it. They were like, why don't you do that work? as an artist in residency at the school with our resources, with the supervision of faculty, with workshop environments. And so it's not, it's A, it wasn't like full tuition for those years. And it also isn't like full, like a third year of school. It was like mm-hmm. film summer camp at that point. I was just working on my thing. So it, the structure was unique, which is kind of what drew me to the program in the first place. But it also cost a bit more
2: to live in New York City for four years as opposed to two years. Oh, no, yeah, dude. Jeez. Ugh. Preach. <laughs> it sounds like be, because for I guess for filmmakers and it's similar to to theater majors and dancers, unlike yeah. music, which we have a DMA, Ph.D. problem. So we right. have a whole other extra degree that's messed up. But <laughs> it, I know for theater, like the I, what is it, the capstone or whatever, like the ending degree is the MFA. So it sounds yeah. like you get this hybridized Ph.D. program because two years. What is a Ph.D.? Two years of coursework two to three years of writing the paper. Totally. Like
0: true. it was the amount of work and effort that went into a PhD, but I didn't get the fuzzy robe with the little, with the little like floppy hat
1: at the end that you get. And that's Dude, really what's the all floppy about. hat makes it all worth it, man. I know. Yeah, I, I like, I want
0: together. nothing more. I just want the floppy hat to just have. I'm a doctor. It looks I'm a doctor. tough, can,
2: though. It can looks anyone tough. save this person? No, but I could film it very well. <laughs>
1: yeah. I'll make the documentary about this. Yeah. yeah. Trust me. In hold on.
2: In about 16 months. So editing's going to be pristine. It's going to be Hitchcockian. So there's a bunch of different angles we can take, and they're all really relevant. Most of our listeners, and pretty much almost everyone our age, it's very hard and it's an extreme rare occurrence nowadays to get out without student debt. And the number is, of course, astronomical. And just a few years ago to now, there's just been article after article, Vox, The Atlantic, and there's opinion pieces about your article. And like The Washington Post, there's so much focus on it because right. of how huge and astounding it is. Is it the biggest debt out there now or I think card? it's
0: it's going to be the next, like when the housing bubble burst in like 2008, I think the next thing, like the next whatever that was, it's going to be with student loan, student loans. So it is a huge problem. And I have, I'm not an economist, so I don't know anything (laughs) about, I'm not going to pretend to like have the answer, but it is a huge issue.
1: There's a really interesting book and it's really timely. It's uh, by Stephanie Kelton. Have you Uh heard of her? No. She used to work for the Senate uh, Budget Committee. She's a former economist and professor. And I think it was either Missouri or Kansas. I think it was the University of Missouri. Okay. And she's advised many presidents. And she talks about, in this book, it's called The Deficit Myth. And it talks about monetary policy at the federal level. And the one thing that many people don't understand about the federal government, as opposed to state governments, businesses, everyday households, is that the federal government cannot go broke because it is the issuer and the monopolistic issuer of the currency it needs to fund programs. It can print the money to fund the programs, right? Now the difference here is, it, that doesn't mean you can print forever. Weimar Republic, you have Germany after World War One, Zimbabwe, right. um, Venezuela, you can inflation your currency to zero. And that is the true speed limit, but it's not a question of deficit or balancing a budget which is what I think a lot of the politicians are doing, because I've thought about this a lot, and this book is bringing a lot together. A lot of what I discovered in this article is like people that fight against the idea of paying off student loans or forgiving student loans is because they view the federal deficit like it's a household budget, but it's Mm -hmm. the same thing because you are educating a populace that is going to be bringing value to the economy overall. And so it's not a net negative Investment, So that's kind of like where that's I'm cool. standing in that position. Have you heard anything about modern monetary theory or MMT or anything like that?
0: Oh, no. Oh, I right. do, I'm a comedy writer. so
2: <laughs> yeah, It just, is a comedy, though. It's, it's oh, kind of a joke. Yeah. So there's a headline. We're not going to dig too far into the article, yeah. but we're looking around at some of these other articles written about this. And it's a question that we can answer ourselves and it, it really hits close to home, which is, is elite college worth it? question mark? Maybe not. And then the line beneath it, the subtitle, wealthy parents who spend heavily to get their kids into top schools aren't giving them as big of an advantage as commonly thought research shows.
1: How do you feel about
2: that?
0: I, on the one hand, anytime a parent, I don't know, there's no reason to be sending your kid to like the best school because that will inherently equate to the best opportunity. I did my undergrad at Rutgers, in New like State School, of New Jersey. Out, like out. New, it's New Jersey State, and it was the best. I felt I got most of, if not everything, I needed out of it, and also opportunities that I'm getting today are still happening because of connections and and the work that I did from like my state school. I disagree with the notion that the and, and I think this was like a bit of an editorial that that article took was like the assumption that we assumed that oh by going to columbia that brand name is going to be our ticket on and on on the other hand though i know if you're going for a specialized degree for for me it was film for musicians that go to juilliard or drop out of berkeley after 2 years or like whatever you go to those good programs because that creates opportunity for you so i don't think like it's a bad thing to be targeting a good school that like does well in that field but i don't think it's Smart to be saying, "Oh, I want to go to Princeton because Princeton's Princeton." You know, mm-hmm. I would never want to go to Princeton. I hate that school. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, but but it's it's just like like whatever like whatever school you want to go to, go there because of
2: what that thing can do for you, not because of the resume line that you went to that school. Exactly, and that's something Drew and I we've talked about this a bunch because I, all three of us, again, very similar stories in that the three of us stayed in state for undergrad. It, we we didn't immediately jump to the Princeton's, fuck Princeton. Uh, actually, just kidding. They have a great music program for PhD yeah. students. Shout outs. But so much value and what at least got us into those elite institutions wasn't another elite institution. It was these right. state schools, these scrappy schools who pump out a lot of really talented people who've got some great programs, who gave us the support that enabled us, the three of us, to succeed in both New York and LA. And it's something that weighed on my mind too, because getting in the minds of us looking at these places, like why did we choose these grad schools? And so I was looking out into the field. Who's doing great work? Who am I hearing about? Who's finding success? Maybe they're not the big names now. They're not the big names in the field yet, but they're on that path. And I'd be a little creeper. I'd read their resumes. I'd read their bios. And the common thread, almost all of them went to one of these big schools. I go to a summer festival. I meet students at these big schools. I see, oh, I could hang. What's the difference? They're in a better environment. They're in, in an environment that can like foster that next step and make it easier. But as we all know, there's zero guarantees. I, right. I just view it as a higher percentage shot. Or it's like a guitar hero. It's the star power. I get a two times multiplier. But if you still miss the notes... You don't get the points. You, you get booed. Yeah, you don't get any yeah. points. Yeah. Yeah. I think it makes it a little easier. But what's crazy is trying to find this balance and is it right for you? Is it right for everyone? Is it worth this cost? Like I'm, it, it's tough. I oh, mean, for sure. Yeah. Like, and, and that was like my whole decision making process
0: because at, at that point, oh man, it was like senior year in college. This would have been like 2014 when I got I, I applied to three schools because like. I, I was never sold on the, the grad school thing. I knew that when you think of NYU film school, it's it, the grad program is the one that Spike Lee teaches at. And, and mm-hmm. I, knowing that I wanted to go to film school, even in undergrad, I, I kind of had different like true film programs on my radar. And, and so I thought about it. And my, my one option was like, I could get out of like college buy very expensive like camera package and kind of sell myself as like a working filmmaker in New York, which I have a lot of friends that are doing that and are doing fantastic. And then the other thing was screw it. Maybe let me take a shot at my MFA where I can put myself in that very valuable environment. And not like a valuable school, but in that invaluable environment where it's you have professionals who are workshopping and who are all there for a common purpose. And so that was appealing to me. And I I learned the best in school you know, with structure. Like I'm a structure person. I can't, anyone who can do like the Quentin Tarantino, go to a cabin in the woods and just write your magnum opus thing, like power to you. That ain't me. I was just, I, I was weighing those pros and cons and I applied to three schools because I I thought if I'm going to apply to film school, let me just apply to the, the best ones because uh, like, why not? What do I have to lose? So I applied to NYU, Tisch. I applied to USC, both UCLA and AFI wanted me to take like the GRE, like a Standardized tests, so I didn't, and then and then Columbia was the third. And at the time, I was working at MTV, and again, wasn't sold either way. I had an okay job, and I got rejected from NYU and USC in the same day. And I'm like, okay, great. You know what? Like Columbia is going to say no to this. Is it? I'm going to start being the New York City filmmaker guy. And, and then surprisingly, like a couple of days later, they said yes. And so now I had this big, it wasn't a matter of where do I go? It was just, do I go <coughs> or not? And like my kind of mantra all through college with my buddies who we made films and comedy with was like, do it live. Yeah, <laughs> like, like it, do it live. And that, that was our thing. And we're just like, when else am I going to have this opportunity? Let me yes and this moment in my life and just see and see what happens. And the part about the article that I wasn't too happy with was maybe the assumption that I was naive in some way to the financial decision I was making. When it was more like like you said before, I was weighing the risk against the reward and it changed my life for the better. I'm still waiting for, like the paycheck hasn't come yet. That that doesn't mean that the like the skills I learned along the way equate to what my
2: income is right now. And another thing too, it's we again a very similar story. I applied I looked out. I was like, "I'm only going to apply to the big boys, to the right. big schools, because the, only those would probably be worth the financial risk." So, not naive to it. Of course, I didn't really understand money, but not, oh, this is just free and everything's going to be <laughs> right. great. I don't have to work. But applied to Michigan, Yale, Juilliard. Rejected from the other two. Get into Juilliard, and it's my life has changed for the better. I would not be in in this call recording this. Had I not gone there, my life would be so much better. Not just kidding. <laughs> yeah, it probably would, man. It would be just so much. No, but I, <laughs> this same story. I get into a Julia. I go in. I go into my composition teacher. I'm gonna go. I'm like be, because I know there's no guarantee. There was no like deferment process. Right. There's no guarantee I'd ever get back in. This is a good year for it to have worked out for me. And my teacher was like, "You're going right?" I'm like, "Yeah, my, my composition teacher." And it's okay, good because one time a couple years back. One of another very successful student undergrad gotten into USC's film scoring program, hard to get into. It's essentially the only one like that has such a high success rate, very expensive too. And he didn't go. And then the person's like, He sells shoes like at a shoe store. Like, oh, man, and no knock selling, stu- selling, selling shoes, very noble, noble business. And we need someone seashore. to sell the shoes. By the seashore. His name is Shally. But that kind of struck me. I remember that moment because we don't know. We don't know how to weigh these. And while it's never a guarantee, that prestige certainly helps. The experiences and the people we meet, my number one thing. Well, yes, I wanted that prestige because then you're in that club. Yeah. Also, I chose Juilliard because I wanted to be surrounded by people my age who had a high chance of success. Right. I realized the value of that. And so- and then that's how I met Drew. So peak <laughs> success.
1: <laughs> they, they say you are the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. Man. And do you feel that? I mean, I think that's like a Jim Rohn quote. And like motivational speakers aside, a lot of what they yeah. say, there are nuggets of wisdom in them. And I find that college affords you that, excuse me, that opportunity to be with people to collaborate with. So I met them at Rutgers.
0: Yeah. So like I still... My like go to collaborators <clears throat> are my my buddies, uh, Chris Pacey, Dave Seaman, his brother Kevin Seaman, Chris's brother Tom. Like just our friends we met at like in college, in the trenches of like staying up till two in the morning and making like stupid comedy sketches. Those are the guys that I'm still writing with today, and that's one circle that I have. And then also like all of my friends from Columbia were a lot of producing students and who were we were the same age. They're all out in LA, like taking over two or like studio executives. One's like they're in development and they're producing stuff. So it's the people that you spend time with is where the worth or the value of the degree comes from. The piece of paper is bullshit. Like the piece of paper means nothing. It doesn't it lets me teach in college (laughs) if I want to, but the time that I spent working towards that piece of paper that that's the value. And like when I'm at, cause in, especially in like in Los Angeles and like entertainment, no one cares, like no one cares about your degree, but what they do care about is the work that you produce. And I spent two years in change out in LA, like then I'm back in New Jersey now because of the pandemic. But the thing that I always found that all of my peers who I was meeting, who didn't go to film school, I'm not trying to say that they were not good writers. Cause I met a lot mm. of really good, like talented artists out there, but it's, I felt confident in the training that I received to, to know that I can hang as a, as opposed to if I didn't go to school, I wouldn't have written three features, four TV pilots, five short films before even like taking my first step
2: into the industry. So yeah, yeah it's all yeah. about the people you meet along the way. We can definitely relate to that because we're always asked all the time, do I need to go to music school? And depending on what you're doing, absolute absolutely not you absolutely. don't need film school <laughs> yeah you, <laughs> you don't need film school to make a film right. but what can it do is it, it can potentially compact what might take you 10 years in the real world or something you might never learn within right. just a few years it can accelerate the process and that's really what the cost is while yes money is one of our most valuable resources it's literally the most time to me is the most valuable resource. It's the only one limited. It's the only one we all eventually run out of. And yes, I'd rather take on this risk personally for me in order to save me time. Could I get to a place five years sooner than if I hadn't? That's an easy investment of money.
0: Yeah, no, you're totally right. And there, there are definitely days when I'm asking myself, where would I be if I didn't like would I be in a better place if I didn't take on sorry my lights are getting all screwed up on me thank you but yeah there there are always these days where I'm like oh what if I didn't put my life on hold for four and a half years to get my MFA like where would I be what would I be doing and yeah maybe I'd be working a job that pays better than I am now but I don't know. Like, I, I like, and all of these other interviews of I did another podcast and, and like, the, they kept trying to get me to say I regret it. And I just, I don't, but <laughs> like, I don't regret it. And that's something that people can't wrap their brains around because all they hear is just the dollars you put in versus the dollars you're getting out. And non artists don't understand that X factor that we all get of no, but it's not, a, it's not about that, at least now, as we're still grinding and trying to get
2: that first break. That's incredible. The The thing about that article that when I reread it, because I remember reading it when it first came out, but in preparation for today, I didn't realize how everything was centered around the dollar. And like that's the only decision we can ever make. And that college's only purpose is to train you for a job, which is the most absurd thing. It's not very <laughs> good at that. and But who was necessarily selling that? I, it's more couched in some other issues. The college has to it wants to report numbers, so you'll show up and you'll justify paying that price right. But that's not really what it's actually all about.
0: Yeah, and to be fair to the Wall Street Journal, that's their whole bit—is like finance. <laughs> I understand that there's a perspective they have on these things, but but yeah, like putting aside the arts, it's I don't know with the way that the economy is today with the millennials and the workforce. That's a whole other thing about what it is college worth it and it, whatever works for you, like whatever helps you get to where you need to be. Like that's. That's what it is for me, that was college, and then another four years of grad school and to to Mike Rose' point, if there's someone out there that wants to work in a specific trade and they don't need to get a liberal arts degree for that, like power to them do what works for you, but what works for me might not work for you, nor might it make sense to you, but that doesn't make our two wants like mutually exclusive in some way.
1: You could literally like if you take a Hollywood perspective, right you could just be. A dude who has been unemployed ever since you graduated high school, but you decided to go to the gym. All the buff, you eat healthy, all you do is do push-ups, and then you get discovered, and now you're in blockbuster movies, right? Right. Like, that is a path that does happen, but for how? It's understanding, like, like out, awareness Dude, I want to get this playground ready. (laughs) All these push-ups. The Rock needs a successor.
0: I've given up on trying to replace The Rock in, like, Fast and the Furious 32.
1: Yeah. You know. yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all
0: holographic. <laughs> oh, oh man.
1: I can't wait for it's family. It's all about family. Right? Oh, yeah, it's yeah. family. It's, it's family. all about family. <laughs>
2: remember. There's another headline. This one, let me see. This is from The Atlantic. And it was like, okay. Does it doesn't matter where you go to college. And yeah. I don't know if it necessarily cites this in that article, but I did remember some study that it was again from a financial perspective. And they looked at outcomes down the road. And what they found that If it's the top 10 within your field or if it's an Ivy institution, an Ivy League institution, it was still worth it. Like it made a measurable difference. But what I said is like literally number 11 and everything below, it didn't really matter where. They compared small community colleges, small liberal arts colleges to even really good institutions like a Rice or a big state school. If you weren't in that top 10, it didn't make a measurable difference. And so then you can start to weigh things against that. One of the other articles did mention, however, if you control for that and you look at these <clears throat> Ivy League institutions, it was still worth it long term to go to the big name school and pay full price than to go for free somewhere else that maybe was a tier or two below in prestige or, or ranking, so to speak. Yeah. It's really fascinating. But also, that's a trap because we're millennials. We know how Google works. We can read that. And so what do we do? <laughs> We're going to charge into these schools.
0: Look, I get that like their schools are trying to sell enrollment and that is, that's a thing that, that they're trying to do. And I, I don't know. I think it, part of it has to be on us to just, to do the research of, like you said, find the school that's good for your field, not the school that's like the best in the country from like a blanket statement perspective. I, I, I Rutgers was like a 45 minute train ride from the greatest city on the planet. And as far and the biggest media market in the country and like mm-hmm. maybe number two in terms of like film and TV plus minus, but the fact that I was so close to New York, plus there were so many of my classmates also working in inter- entertainment in New York city. There was like, I didn't get my first job in, at NBC in 30 rock. If it wasn't for a buddy, I went to Rutgers with who is working at SNL as like an engineer and, and it's, and that's, so that was the value. It was not like, Oh, if, if I went to, I don't know what's if I went to Cornell. Yeah. I don't like what I, I. wouldn't be. I'd be working local TV in Ithaca, New York. They I got wouldn't a be a bunch of blockbusters coming
1: out of Pittsburgh. Oh, oh but, yeah. yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like that's where yeah. you go.
0: <laughs> yeah. And like right. and, Pitt, and Pitt's Pitt's a great school too. Like my buddy went there, and so it's just go to a place that that works for you. And like mm-hmm. Rutgers worked for me, and I
1: I made the best of it. I love that advice, man. Because like my grandfather like hounded me from the time I was like 12 till graduation, And graduation. Go yeah. to Harvard, <laughs> <laughs> go to Harvard, just apply, just do it. I'll pay for your application fee, just apply to Harvard. He wanted me to go to Harvard so bad and I wanted him to get off my back so hard. I was like, what's the music equivalent? Cause this guy is not gonna leave me alone. <laughs> so, so he wasn't happy I didn't apply to Harvard but it worked for me, Juilliard worked for me. Yeah. Because I wanted to be in New York, because I wanted to pursue music as a performer, as a freelance performer, and so if totally. I tried to go to Kansas City, Kansas, and try to do <laughs> classical music, that just wasn't going to be the same, right? Success rate,
2: and it's tough, yeah. And I think it really comes down to, of course, the per- per- the person and the success rate. Because Kansas City, UMKC, it's a very good school. It's a great school, beautiful campus, beautiful halls, but. When I was making my decision, I looked out. I was like, who's doing something and what I want to do? Who's been able to, air quotes, make it? It was going more often than not to these big name schools. And so that was just something to consider. People who didn't go to any schools are making great films. But if you look deeply, who else is working on that project? Someone who went to film school. Someone who was (laughs) able to set aside time, have mentors, put in those four to eight 8.5 8.5 years into the yeah. craft.
0: I mean, for the, and that's something that I, I hate because everyone's like, Oh, Quentin Tarantino didn't go to film school. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, he's one guy. <laughs> do you know yeah. how, do you like, do you know, do you know how many, hey, how much material is being made today? And, and you're trying to tell me that not a single person on any Marvel movie went to film school. Come on, no way. And it's just like art artists know that if you want to be good at a craft, you have to spend time to do the craft. And, a great way to do that is to go to school for it. And I'm sure there's someone out there who is like crushing it in comedy land right now that didn't go to Harvard. Although a lot of them did go to Harvard specifically. And I think that's where I messed up. Um, <laughs> kidding, like totally kidding, but not really an Collegeist, Anyway, but yeah, I, I think that there are ma- many successful people in the arts that have not gone to school and are just like, were able to teach themselves and are naturally gifted and like power to them. But
1: like, I think a lot of people do as well. Can I jump into a little bit of like your experience? I'm excited to speak with you, Zach, because I'm a musician. I, I'm not really in the film world. I'm not in yeah. the production world in that way. I, the farthest I go is being a YouTuber who hasn't posted a video. <laughs> but what was it? Well, can you talk about your experience working for SNL and 30 Rock and writing for TV, The Tonight Show, even worked with, on The Seth Meyers Show, correct?
0: Yeah. So, so, what
1: is that life like?
0: Well, so to be totally fair, because I, I did not write on those shows, I wish I did. If I was staffed at, at, on any TV show, that that student debt, what the hell am I going to do with my life? Thing <laughs> that would be a totally different situation. But I did intern. I was an intern at Seth Meyers. I was an intern at SNL. I was an intern mm-hmm. at, at the Tonight Show. Now, I'm back there now, working on a new thing. But it was awesome, and like I did that a. During the artisan residency period at Columbia, where I had no classwork and I had nothing to do except go work a job, which I got from a connection from undergrad. So, like, it all, yeah. it, all it wouldn't happen if I wasn't right place, right time. But what it was, was day awesome.
1: To day? What was your day to day? I'm like, I mean, just curious.
0: Oh, it's yeah. A
2: legendary place.
0: No, I knew, I'm like, I grew up on like Animal House and the Blues Brothers and like the original SNL cast from like. Reruns that my parents would show me because I'm a millennial. Like it was just, it was cool. Like to to work on those shows and to I was the writer's PA, like the writer's intern. So I was writing like the front half of every monologue joke. So when like Seth was like, this is just in today, like Donald Trump did something really dumb at a thing. I was the one researching all the news and like and right condensing it down to that one sentence setup that the writers would get and like flesh out with with jokes. It was it was awesome. It was just a really cool experience. And like late night is something I want to work in full time. And I want to make films, also narrative stuff, but as a job, it's awesome. Like it's fun, but it's it was a really cool experience. Again, that would not have happened if I wasn't in a position than the place that I was in at that
1: time. Practical question. Sorry, this this came to mind. Since you were doing a lot of the research, right? Do you have any practical googling tips that our audience can use? Like how to like correctly use Google? Because there are some that people are really good at it. I'm not sure. Oh
0: yeah. And and like I said, this all kind of comes from, I have a background in in journalism and like I took semesters and semesters of like media ethics courses. No, for real. Like we would, we, we had to learn how to do research for all those. I do my own research people Mm -hmm. out there. Mm -hmm. But If you want to find something, you have to search the topic and then find out what first things first, what source are you reading? from? Are you reading from a source that is known for being factually correct? Is it from a, is it a news source that follow practices, ethical journalism? And is like getting multiple sources of information for their article. like, I, I look up the AP when I want to find out stuff that like is happening on that was, I would follow the AP's Twitter when I was like the writer's intern for those shows. Cause like they're just like fact, like no editorial, no, like, it's just like, this is a thing that happened period set. And like, I, the conversations I always get into with people where they're like, oh, did you hear? I heard people talking that people are saying that this is so-and-so. I'm like, where did you hear it from?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Who else is saying the same thing? Are they a reliable source? And and it's just doing that due diligence of finding out where you're getting your information from and finding out where your source is getting their information from. Are they using primary sources? Do they have reporters on, in the field on the ground? Or are they just retweeting what someone else said in an article? And, and yeah. that's where- for anyone who's just trying to look stuff up, especially as we get, we're coming off an election cycle, but we're constantly like with people constantly campaigning and misinformation, especially with COVID being such a problem. Oh, yeah. It's where, are you, like, where are you getting your information from? Are you listening to, are you reading multiple sources? Are you like checking your own facts or are you just listening to something that clicks in your head that you think is true and then feels nice and like juicy and warm for you and just letting that be the little bubble that you
1: live in. That's so interesting because yeah, like that's like critical thinking and that's a part of not being swept up by mob mentalities. Like right. it's really easy to go on Twitter and develop an opinion on something and both opinions at the
2: same time. Yeah, Or <laughs> to make <What>? a <laughs> 10 minute hate video about someone you've never met. Yeah, and- <laughs>
1: right, I read an right, article right, once. Right.
2: It's yeah, and, so. and it's so crazy just because for us in our stages of our career, yeah, like you said, it's like hilarious and flattering <laughs> that like the thought of someone who would dare go into my back catalog to listen to stuff. i would be like, bro, you're the first person there in like months. Like, congrats. Yeah, like, thanks, thanks, thanks for the, the listens. Thanks for the he, he
0: found some deep cuts too. And that was the, the best part was like, he found stuff that I haven't been like promoting in a long time. But to go back to what you were saying, like I, something that Twitter recently did that I I think is fantastic is if you click, if you go to retweet an article, Mm -hmm. it gives you a little thing that says, did you actually read this? And and it's brilliant because even it just makes you think like that extra second of maybe let me like find out what I'm sharing with people. And and like those little things are just like helping people become
2: better media consumers. And there's also this weird thing now um, with our generation, I think growing up through The Daily Show with Jon Stewart to where, I don't know, I think a lot of millennials are now getting their news, particularly in the political environment, through comedy, through these like and last week tonight, they're winning they win every award. And then it turns out they have an insane research team that like worked for the New York Times and all these other things.
0: Oh yeah. Like they're employing actual working journalists on those shows. Like I think I think a lot of people are just assuming, oh, it's just a bunch of people making jokes. And like when you look at the research teams that these shows come from it's huge and it's it's not only huge but they're experienced seasoned veteran journalists and veteran investigative reporters who know what they're doing and like that stuff's cool and i think john stewart invented an entire new form of comedy in this like it's news but it's entertainment but they're actually doing journalism as well it goes back to
1: the tradition of comedy right like where it was like in the Greek theater, you would have tragedy and you have comedy, but the comedy would always talk about social issues that are present in the society. And they would talk about the things people wouldn't really talk about. Same thing about the court gestures. We make fun of the king. All your people are starving and look how fat you are, you dummy. You know what I mean? And everyone's like, he lives. He lives. (laughs) 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 But that's true. And I think that with the internet and with John Stewart what he did is like a continuation of that tradition said, now journalism it feels like journalism i didn't even know they had that but it seems like ju- people say journalism's dying but if that's the case it may be evolving
0: yeah it's i think people say journalism's dying because no one wants to pay for it anymore and that's a totally different conversation but i think like to your point with the greek theaters and like the court jesters all art in some way shape or form is inherently Commenting on some part of society, like I'm from New Jersey, and Bruce Springsteen's my all-time favorite, you know, mm-hmm. musician or artist. It's a requirement, ever. right? That's Yeah, no, it's it's part of the cult, the, the Church of Bruce. But yeah. I love when people are like, "I hate Bruce's political songs," because I'm like, every song, every single song that he has ever written is coming from a place of commentary about society. I don't think you can like "Born in the USA" is not a happy song. it's that's not like a fourth of july like fist bumping anthem that's oh this country is really fucked up and so i just think like people i never understood when people are like can we like separate the politics i just want to just shut up and write shut up and play shut up and be funny and it's like no man that's where art comes from is like a place of talking about something that you might think is uncomfortable
2: my favorite example of that is, of course, Rage Against the Machine. Do you not even like? you not even read the title? Like, right? Like, yeah, man, we love the police and authority. Like, Rage for
0: Tom, the Machine. Tom Morello knows exactly what he's doing.
2: Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's like Andre Three Thousand. Hey y'all. Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah,
2: now that's an American classic.
1: <laughs> that's an American classic. He says, "Y'all don't want to hear me; you just want to dance." yeah like the lyrics he's saying he's saying that are we really looking for love or are we just looking for the next thing oh i'm getting a little too deep y'all just need to dance here's the beat (laughs)
2: <laughs> give me some sugar. I am
1: your neighbor. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? So, all like, right, all right, all right, all right, all
2: right. <laughs> yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. About that's been going around. They're like it shows the dates of the how long the Confederacy lasted and then the dates of how long Outcast lasted. It's like outcast <laughs> was around longer than the Confederacy. We should have outcast statues all over the South. Like Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I agree. <laughs> As an atl
1: I agree.
0: Absolutely. But no, yeah. I think, and especially for me, like my most recent short film, which was a musical, I, it was about the kind of like millennial experience being a 21, 22, 23 year old. <coughs> and going through this, I'm just getting out of school. The system has told me that if I do all the right things, I will be successful. And yet here I am with panic attacks and a bunch of debt and like I can't afford rent because there's no jobs and the jobs that do are that do exist are only like 10 bucks an hour. And like, that's all coming from a place of, of real talk. And so yeah. I just think like inherently we draw from our experiences and that experience
2: has to be like a truthful lived one. Speaking mm-hmm. of that film. So it, it's wonderful. It's how uh, oh, I think you. you were going through with all of the success of that around the time when we we had met out in LA through mutual friends and so it's everything is fine. It's a panic attack in D major. So that's also why do you be a great <laughs> guest? We got comedy, we got a comedy writer, director, film, musicals, we got yeah. it all. So I was curious now looking back at that for how poignant it is. So the opening line is something along the lines of like after 16 semesters of college and grad school, I'm finally ready to go. After 16 semesters of college and grad
1: school, I'm finally ready to go. And now yeah. here we are.
2: Can you talk about looking at that? Maybe a little bit more about what the film's about, and also does it hit a little too home now? or
0: Yeah, I was, I still am in in a very snarky place about it. But like, I I was in the thick of grad school and going through that kind of existential. What am I going to do? Because this is ending. I was, I think I wrote it. I wrote it in 2016. So I was also like dealing with the election crazy and working in late night and having to like having to having to live in that like cynical place day to day for joke humor mining. And I just like uh, to be totally honest, it it really just came from all of every film that's made at Columbia is like a very specific thing. Like they, there's just a shared genre that a lot of people love. And it's this like slice of life drama, nothing's really happening, but everything's happening. The story and And some of the films, a lot of the films that come out of that school are incredible. They win Oscars and they win can and they win everything. And it's really magical art, but I'm not that person. I want to do jokes and I want the Blues Brothers is like like, my favorite movie ever. Um, And so I was just thinking, what's the one film that like no one at the school is ever going to make? Like, what's the one, even just the one genre where all of like the rules of filmmaking where like characters don't say what they're really thinking and there's nuance and metaphor. And I'm like, let's do a musical where a character says exactly what's on their mind, looking like straight at the camera. And so it just started, it started out of that. And then I wrote a draft of something that was just like very silly and dumb and not coming from a true like life or the true pain that I was experiencing at that time. And the, I was up for a grant for it to like, to make the film. And the person giving us the grant was like, just start over, try, try again, throw it out. Like this just wasn't, it wasn't truthful. It wasn't real. And at the time I was having very real panic attacks, like physical shaking, convulsing. Um, like it wasn't great. Uh, just from like stress of school and stress of, am I going to succeed as an artist? Am I going to make it? Like all that stuff. And so my one professor, Ramin Barani, who like I credit so much for just this little, very simple and thoughtful advice it was just like, he was just like, use it. Make the story autobiographical. Make it about your life and your experience. And, and then that's where Everything's Fine came from. Even that opening number, like they shot it. We shot it at Rutgers. We shot it at my parents' house. Like it was all like all of those lyrics are very real to life of what I was going through. And I leaned into like the cynicism a little bit. I don't like cynicism. I, I don't, I think you can't live life like that, but for jokes and for some of those, the bit about like in the Xanax song where it's let's post a picture of us having fun. Trust me, it'll fool everyone. There's a lot we're trying to talk about this sort of like fake performance that we all live in social media. And so it it was all just coming from real life to be like, it was very autobiographical as far as how I felt. And then now looking back on it, I like, I still, I love that piece. I love that music. I find myself still singing it. Like it will never leave my brain. But I also, I was trying to, for the last couple of years, it into either a feature or a TV show. And I just think like between 2017, when we wrote it and 2021, the world has changed so much that I don't know. I don't know if that's a story I want to tell right now. I want to, because I've also grown as as an artist and I think there's other things that are living at the top of my brain that I I want to talk about. Like it's funny how those
2: things change and yet at the same time you can still enjoy it. I love that looking back just as a composer on past pieces. I can relate to that too. Like my most successful and like award-winning in the normal institutional sense piece was the one I thought was like the least likely. There's crap tons <laughs> of whole notes for 3 minutes. It's in like yeah. D minor. Like it's in a key which is very rare and I remember the professors it was for a choreographer a composers class. We actually brought one on this podcast. Jerome began uh, amazing teacher, but other teachers of that class were like, "Okay, this is with dance. You don't use words with dance. It just doesn't quite work." And also, like, no electronic, no. Like, I just basically did a checklist of like everything they said don't do, and it looked so unimpressive on the page. And for some reason, I know why because I cared about it. I love that piece. It yeah. was the most successful. All my fancy smancy complicated music never did as well as this simple but my best work. And so it is neat looking back on those. I remember I I don't think we we're at the Federal but so somewhere in North Hollywood. I remember yeah. you talking at that time the list of names about if it was going to be a series some of the titles, you know, uh, piece for a minute. Uh, I, yeah. But um it is it's neat to see how we evolve because now we finally have some distance between our projects. We've now right. lived long enough what it's like to look back on past projects and to finally like embrace them and not hate everything. Oh, oh for sure. There's plenty of
0: like college shorts that uh, I made at Rutgers that were like freshman sophomore year, like very dumb things. Like there was one, but but now like I love them now. Like I because I'm I think so fondly of that time in my life where we had no no cares in the world except to wake up at three in the morning and insane story about a a mob of clowns kidnapping a friend and we have to gear up with like rock'em sock'em robot like hulk hands and fight them. And that was a, like a film that we made just for fun, because that's that's what you do when you're inebriated college student. And my buddies and I like we still look back on some of that stuff with very fond memories. But I also that's not the kind of thing I'm making today.
1: You said there are a lot of things that are like top of mind that you would like that do resonate with you today? Can you share one of those things that you're feeling?
0: Yeah, some something that's been living with with me for a while now that I'm, I'm trying, like I'm trying to find like a vehicle for it. My my ten year reunion would have been 2020. Like my ten year high school reunion would me have too. been yeah. yes, and that didn't happen. And I don't like I don't think it's going to happen because most of my friends who I still like, some of my best friends are some of my friends from high school, and like. Uh, everyone's just—I I see who I want to see. I keep in touch with everyone on Facebook. And there's—I don't know if the the class reunion in that traditional sense is going to happen. Also, just by nature of like where my hometown is in relation to like Rutgers and everything else, my hometown's the next town over from New Brunswick. So I'm from East Brunswick, New Jersey. And every year on Thanksgiving, the night before Thanksgiving, when everyone comes back home, we would we would all meet up, like the whole freaking town. Would meet up at one of the college bars down the road, and so just it became a de facto high school reunion for the last ten years. We were doing it, and now that it's time to actually do this thing, it's I don't know if that's going to happen. And so one of my favorite movies is The Big Chill. One of my other favorite movies are I'm drawing a blank, but it's you know, just like the <laughs> idea of the, like friends coming back together after a long time and just like dealing with something or talking about something. And so I, I've been playing with a bunch of stories that use a 10 year reunion as a catalyst and like an inciting incident, or maybe that like in the, like with the big chill, I've, I have a draft of something now where like a friend dies in the very beginning. And that's a thing that brings people together. And I don't know, just like that idea of like time passing, that's something like it, that I've been thinking about lately is like just stories that are could still be funny and still be hilarious, but dealing with the fact that like we're not getting any younger, and as artists, we're still waiting to shoot that shot. And what if a character never did it? What if they're the one that never left home and never took that risk? What if I'm gonna be that person that ends up being that townie that never like pursued? The, the dream that he said he would be pursuing. And that's what I'm I'm dealing with right now. Like I'm living in my hometown because the pandemic sort of put everything on hold. So that's I'm trying to I'm trying to draw I inspiration from life.
1: I think Thanks, that's man. so beautiful, man. No, and it's so relatable. And it will be relatable to so many different people because especially right now, this pandemic has really in a lot of ways knocked down a ton of people who are at the tip of their career. Right. We had we've had people on this podcast who are one of them is a friend of ours from Juilliard. Was a first violinist with the Met opera. Yeah. The pinnacle. If you're talking yeah. about like string playing, you're talking Absolutely. about winning a job in New York City, that's it. She had to empty her locker. My friends who are in the Seattle Symphony. They yeah. didn't work for a little while. And so I think that artists around the scope would connect with it. But I think even people that decided, hey, I don't do this art, so I'm going to learn to cope. And maybe how they're feeling like that they're not as fulfilled as they could be. So I think that's really beautiful. And maybe this is unsolicited. But I also think that it, art, my favorite art also presents a solution that's positive. Yeah, Not just look at this problem, but like, oh, hey, here's how it turned out good. <laughs> Yeah. maybe we can dream this up. Do you have a perspective on how maybe that might end? The
2: solution how- is trade school. According <laughs> to my, went, there was Mike
1: Rowe, all along. Yeah. Oh my God, yeah. it's Mike Rowe, the <laughs>
2: podcast.
1: <laughs> Dirty jobs, <bitch>. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, I think if I were to tell that story, and that's it's stuff that I'm I'm working on right now. I think those characters have to both do a thing that they haven't done, and whether it's like one of them realizing maybe it is time to give up the dream because it's becoming unhealthy or maybe it's time to actually get back into it because you've been putting yourself on ice it's time to live life now and not live in this like limbo of coming and going through the motions like i have a good friend who we were friends in college and he was the most talented actor i knew at that time and and he was great got his guy's got his equity card and everything and then one too many Juilliard rejections later, and now he's a lawyer. And it's just I I want nothing more than to see him get up on stage at some point later in life. But
1: mm-hmm.
0: I just think I, I know for me, I would never be satisfied not like trying anything else. And that's when like all the Twitter trolls and stuff like are coming out of the woodwork from that article. They're like, "What? When are you going to get a real job?" And and I'm like please watch the last shot of Dr. Strangelove. I want to be that cowboy riding the missile into the ground. So like, I'm either going to do this or I'm going to go down swinging and screw it. That's how this is going to work. And so I think like the solution is if this pandemic has taught us nothing else, is that life's too damn short to not try and to not go all in on whatever it is that makes you passionate. For me, it's filmmaking and art and comedy and writing. But for you guys, it's music. For someone else, it's whatever it is. But why you have nothing to, like, why not do that thing? What else are you going to do? Just live and then die?
1: Have you heard of Charles Bradley? No. He, this is one of my favorite stories. I love sharing it with people. Charles Bradley was a soul singer, but he had a, t- he had a really tough upbringing. He, he grew up with a single mom, but then was kicked out of the house and had to live with a grandma, but ended up not getting along with grandma. Mom came back. In his life, he ended up not really connecting with mom. Ended up homeless at sixteen. Was living, was sleeping in in subway cars and and the likes of that. And then he started actually bussing tables, doing just low minimum wage jobs. But he took on this persona of Black Velvet, and he would be a James Brown impersonator. And he did this for forty years. He did it for 40 wow. years, was discovered by a producer, got signed to a label, made his first album at, in his 60s. It blew up, went super viral. He traveled the world, toured the world, made a ton of money, and died three years later. Oh, man. But he kept going, right? Yeah. How many people would have, like at year 37, been like, this might <laughs> not work, right? Right. 40 plus years. And then yeah. you discover
0: it, man. And that's the thing. I know there's this kind of inherent like ageism in entertainment. Like nothing. I think the most unhealthy thing for the industry <laughs> are those like thirty under thirty articles of so uh,
1: bad every I mean, time I read. And, them. and it's huge oh. in music,
2: like child oh, prodigies. Oh, oh. like oh yeah, are oh, five. Yeah. I don't give a <laughs> shit. They don't pay taxes. Like, it's they huge don't, in they film don't too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know,
0: like I, I, I'm going to butcher his name, so I won't even try. But like that filmmaker that made Mommy, he's like an 18 year old that blew up at the Cannes Film Festival. And now he's got a career. And Bo Burnham, who hit yeah. it young, like it's and, and again, power. If you can do it at that age. Awesome. Like power to you. Like case in point at, at SNL, like Leslie Jones, who is hilarious. She got her start la- later in life and she wasn't 18 when they cast her. and And that was like. Something that I'm still struggling with along the way is I'm 29, I'm about to hit turn 30. And again, Bo Burnham's inside is still like fresh in my head. (laughs) So that song of it's terrible and great at the same time. But yeah, that's something I'm thinking about is like, oh, what if I didn't go to film school? I'd be where I am in the industry now, maybe at 25, 26, mm-hmm. like just what does that four-year gap mean for my career? And like my dad, that's the analogy my dad always makes is like, oh yeah, but you're like, you're not 29, you're 25 professionally. And I'm like, no, like I'm 29 <laughs> years old and I'm still living at home. And I'm a stale 25. I'm still <laughs> stale, yeah. Bro. Yeah. It's, I, I just think it it really comes down to a matter of perseverance and like survivor, you have to like outwit and outlast. <laughs> Everybody. Some people um, find the immunity idol.
2: That's the problem. Like and that's the thing. And like, uh,
0: the, the, person, the person who gets the immunity idol and can ride that the rest of the game, like great. Like you did a thing that I couldn't do and I have to work twice as hard now, but that doesn't mean I'm going to give up because like you can slip up at some point and I still have to be in the ready to go when that magic phone call comes in or that like magic yes. email, that, that magic email that you get, drop everything and do this thing because it's going to change your life.
1: You know, something that I think about all the time all the opportunities that fell across my lap that I didn't realize were opportunities at the time because I didn't have the skill, the knowledge, or the capability at the time. I, I, right. Case in point, let's say that somebody walks up to me and I, we're talking, we're networking like we talked about in our social uh, skills, <laughs> artists yeah. uh, episodes, and they say, yeah, they are looking for investors uh, to because they flip houses and they do this and do that. And if you didn't get your money, you can't join in a hundred thousand dollar deal, even though the opportunity is right there. To me so you're always it's always important to just focus on your work, focus on your development. Yeah. So the next opportunity that comes by, maybe you could take advantage of it. Do you feel that? Yeah, and,
0: and that's the thing. Like the, the fact that you were at that point in life not like that was not an opportunity for you because of where you were in mean That doesn't mean that you like that you messed up. That just means like that it wasn't the time to do the thing. The analogy I I like to use is we're all in line at the deli at like a crowded deli and we all picked our number and (laughs) they're just rattling off the numbers like one after another. And it's what are we going to do in the meantime while we're waiting for our number to get called? Are we going to be prepared to, are we going to do the, are we going to, do the other things, are we going to do the other work? Are we going to have like our stuff ready to go? So when the time that number does get called, we haven't been wasting the last five years, 10 years, like whatever the hustle is. um, Because you never know when that opportunity is going to present itself. So like all you can do is just do good work and grind and hustle and not give up and pray that like the time that opportunity does come,
1: you're ready to go. That's solid advice, man. I love that.
2: We've we've primarily had like f- full blown musicians who have some other interest or some other career, but we have been fortunate to have some people from the theater world. We've got a, a music, musician comedian hybrid who's who had an opening set on the Tonight Show. She's done great, and we've had a, a TV writer, a good friend of ours, Lee Colston, who's uh, worked on a number of shows. You're in a unique place to where you also have drawn the full spectrum of filmmaking and comedy and writing your own music. And is it hard to choose? Do you hop around? Are you, is your dream job, your dream role like doing all of these simultaneously? Or is there one you're focusing on hopping around? What is your approach to being so multifaceted? My,
0: like my dream is to make stuff and, I don't want to say, oh, my dream is to just be a TV writer. My dream is just to be a filmmaker. I want to get my work out there in in a broad, like, long term kind of way. Right now, I think the reality is like the jobs are in television writing. That's the career path for me right now is trying to get staffed on a TV show because I've worked the below the line writer's assistant and script coordinator jobs, and I'm ready. I have samples ready. Like, the next step in that path is to like pray, hope that I get staffed on a show at some point. And if there's anyone, any showrunners listening out there, I'm available. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah shout out. You know, it's nut, like, yeah, shout out. You know, you know but uh, <laughs> at the same time, so that's one route is I'm trying to connect with people in Los Angeles and in New York who are like, want to hire me as a writer on their show for me having my background and everything. But at the same time, I'm still like, I'm making my own videos on the side. Like I, work, I worked a job for Buzzfeed this year. We have like sketches for Buzzfeed coming out. I like, I produced a commercial Uh, a whole like ad campaign for Cartoon Network over this year. And like producing is paying the bills and like video production is paying the bills. And I also, I'm working on my first feature right now. And that's like a movie that I want to make at some point when the opportunity presents itself. And I, especially with, with the it's you have to be doing a little bit of everything all the time. You have to like have like multiple things in the oven. A, because you don't know what's going to hit. If I'm just working on like tunnel vision of all I want to do is like do my first feature. That's fine, but I I don't make the I don't <clears throat> want to make the kind of movies that are going to have mass success at Venice or Berlin or Cannes. I'm not making like these art house dramas where you can go that route and then you're now like a filmmaker in that sense. I want to do like broad strokes. Comedy and those movies don't play at those film festivals. So I have to be working on that project, but also on Twitter and like doing jokes on Twitter. And I have to be making funny videos on like Instagram. And it's so you got to be doing everything and it's crazy, but you also have to love it. Otherwise, you're going to get burnt out.
1: I have a question. I just had an idea as you were talking about, you got to do everything. You got to do everything. I've been recently like, my girlfriend is so into TikTok. Like she tries to say she didn't like TikTok. <laughs> same, same. I'm wondering, have you thought about writing like a feature length film, but put it on TikTok and put it like each TikTok is like a scene?
0: That is no, I've never thought about that. That's fascinating.
1: Be really sticky in terms of the way it's done. It could that could go super viral in terms of if one of the segments goes viral and gets picked up by yeah. the algorithm, they're going to go to the other, they're going to go to see the whole thing, right?
0: Oh yeah. And that's like, I- I'm very like artistically turned on by things that, you know, play with it, it like play with the format in a meta kind of way. So, like 10 years ago, that example would have been like, Broad City or High Maintenance, which are both amazing shows, but it's like the like the web series was like early two thousands, what TikTok is today, and like now then Broad City, like they they hit the jackpot. They had a web series that just hit the zeitgeist at the right time and that launched their careers. And I'm always trying to think of ways, like what's like a format that no one's doing right now that. Can blow up in that way. And I don't know if it's TikTok because TikTok is very like, perf- not performance based, it's very like personality driven. And you don't want narrative, like the, all the layers of like character and drama and like scripted narrative in the way between you and the phone screen. And I think that's why Quibi, because we're just like, we're programmed mm-hmm. to either make narrative content like an event. Or to watch cat videos and TikToks, and I don't know if that I'm gonna I'm gonna not think about it, but watch a narrative project is something we've dialed into. But like I, one of the projects of like in just in history that I've always been fascinated by is Orson Welles's War of the Worlds radio show, and how it was disguised as a news broadcast. And one of the classes I, I took, creating producing a cross media class at at Columbia, and. One of the kind of think exercises was, you know, just come up with a story that's told either over social media or using like chat rooms or what's like the way, what's like a, a cool meta way to tell a story? I think VR is an example of something we haven't cracked yet, because right now it's VR is very much like you're on the rails of a roller coaster. Mm -hmm. It's like all the non fun parts of a video game where you're just watching the cutscenes, but you can't actually make a choice. And I think when someone figures out how to make a VR narrative work in a way that's satisfying to an audience where we don't feel like we're on rails, that's going to, that's going to be huge.
2: That's it. I got our media cross collaboration <laughs> here because we're going to, we're going to put dance on podcasts. Like you just hear like yeah. feet movements and slugs, like, <laughs> like nothing else. Like dance. a um, Imagine like stomp the
0: podcast <laughs> or like, like, like blue man group, the podcast.
1: Blue man. <laughs> blue man group the podcast. Oh, you guys can't see it, but it's very blue. It's very yeah.
0: Blue. <laughs> <laughs> like I want to hear what, I want to hear what the, those guys podcast sounds like. Oh my gosh.
1: <laughs> I've never <laughs> seen it. <laughs> But I see the advertisements all the time, and I'm like, yo. Oh, we had a guest last week. His name's Tommy McGovern, yeah. And he said he was talking about this guy who's a, a character named Clownvis, <laughs> who's Elvis, but dressed like a clown. Great. And it's, he's got a huge following, inadvertently pissed off that audience and had that audience coming for him. <laughs> But it's so funny, do Blue Man Group, ClownVis. I think that there are so many, you said a little earlier in the podcast and it was like creating something. Yeah. Right? And like, in, even though you may be waiting at the deli, waiting for your deli number to come up, you're doing something. If it were me, I'd bring a book. Because I'm an over-preparer. <laughs> I love reading. Yeah. I love gaining knowledge, but if there's anything that I've learned in my twenties was yeah. that outsized like execution and just dogged grit it is, is the way to go. That's the best education you can get.
0: Oh, a hundred percent. And you know, wh- while you're thinking of what you're going to be doing, what you're going to be working on while you're at the deli, it's, it, it might as well be something insane. Like it might as well be something that no one's seen before blue man group or just cause that's the thing. It's our job to make something that captures the like that strikes lightning in a bottle for everybody in a way that's oh my god how have we not been following this person I I, I didn't know that I need this in my life now um, but now
1: I'm never going to be the same
0: and one of the, one of the best pieces of, of advice I got I was 2013 I was at the Cannes Film Festival again through a college film that like pl- got to go there and so it just again all the different steps along the way led to a thing but I bumped into Lloyd Kaufman who did he did the trauma movies like Toxic Avenger and mm-hmm. Nukem High like case in point James <laughs> Gunn those films were the first movies he made he worked for trauma for a while and now he's the man now and went to Columbia for undergrad so it all comes oh. together but like I ran into Lloyd and and he all his films were set in New Jersey and I was like I'm a New Jersey guy and we immediately hit it off and he was just like for your first feature do something do something insane <laughs> that people are, they might hate it, but they might love it because like, you just have to do something that's going to be totally out of left field. If you want any kind of traction in today's overstimulated over bump bombarded media landscape. And that's where like, I do I did a musical at Columbia film school. Cause that was just, that was insane. That premise was like, no one does that. I, in the back of my head, I'm just thinking, what's, what's that thing going to be that like
2: just strikes a chord with people. One of my favorite parody bands, it's besides Clownvis, is um, Mac Sabbath. It's a Black Sabbath cover band, but they're all the McDonald's characters. Amazing! Oh, they literally go God. on tour. What? I love it. Yeah, it's I love like it. up the Hamburglar, oh, like singing Ozzy Osbourne. No. It's great. Are yeah, you, you gotta, serious? You gotta, you, gotta, you gotta
0: Google. That's it. that's so that's so funny. Oh, Mac Sabbath. My, you heard, you heard Sabbath. It, we actually one of the things we did on BuzzFeed that hasn't come out yet is a McDonald's. Bit where I play like hipster Ronald McDonald and we're like, ra- we're like wrapping the McDonald's dollar menu. Just do a McDonald's thing. That's the ticket for success.
1: <laughs> dude. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Does it have trap beats?
0: It's like a, it's a weird, it's not trap. It's like a weird mix of like a hip hop beat, but with like a Jason Morazzi acoustic guitar. Oh. It's like a weird, like my buddy Dave put it together and it's Dave Seaman and it's incredible. I'm, I'm stoked for it to come out, but it has not released yet.
1: If you want and if you need a hip hop consultant, <laughs> further, yeah, God, that's really cool. I, I hope that gets made for real because that's that's the stuff that, like, is the lightning in, in the bottle. Thanks, it's man. Synthesis of many different thought to be unrelated items, but put together. In a
0: way. Yeah, that's, that's it is made, it's just a matter of are people going to see it?
1: <laughs> oh, is it
0: out? No, it's not. It's not out yet, but it is in the can. I'm like, it's done. It's just, okay. I, I'm waiting for someone to upload it.
1: Uh, so
2: come on. It. Uh,
1: come it. on. Tell him to send me the Dropbox link. I'll do it for him. Yeah.
2: Sounds <laughs> good. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll do re- Thank
1: thinking This podcast to we'll do a reaction. A oh, great. reaction video. So we got you. We will help you promote gonna this it. thing. We're going to watch this thing. We're going to watch. Yeah. yeah watch look,
0: like, yeah. I'll send you the link because I can too. send you the private link.
1: Please. Oh, yes. <laughs> I need to see this. I need to see this.
2: This has been a wonderful conversation and it was good to focus in on the dark and big scary student <laughs> loan, but there's a lot of takeaways. There's a lot of positives, a lot of lights yeah. that we want to go off. So it was super helpful and to, to talk about your film work and your entire journey. And you're a doer. You go out and you do the thing and the best art is the art that exists. And that's something we can definitely all take away from. At the end of this episode, <laughs> we, we can't wait to see wh- where you go next and bring you on at another time. Where can we find you? Where should we look for your stuff? And and look, guys, thanks so much for having me on. This was like, this was awesome. I
0: like, I am on social media on all platforms as at Zach Morrison, 18. My films are on Vimeo. They're on YouTube. We have, I, I was vlogging for a little bit. I was doing it like a YouTube, like a sketch comedy show for a little bit. And so I'm just constantly putting different work out and on Instagram or or whatever it is. But yeah, find me online. Zach Morrison, 18 is my handle on everything. And yeah, I hope like, I, I don't have anything to promote or shout out, but I just, I hope you see some of my stuff at some point because it's,
2: (laughs) I think it's fun. Like I hope someone's watching. We think it's (laughs) fun too. And we'll have those links in the description, but I'm excited and congrats uh, on your new position. And can't wait to see where that takes you to. Yeah, me too. I'm excited. I'm back in New York,
0: which is always fun. And the grind never ends. Like this job only goes for two more weeks uh, in and out. And so on to the next thing. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Zach Morrison,
2: thanks for coming through. Till next time.
1: Yes, indeed, man. Thank you so much.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me, guys.